Turn your Bibles to James chapter 4, verse 11. Father, we are thankful for your word. We praise you that we have it with us, that we can read it, that we can study it, that we can proclaim it, that we could know it. And we ask this morning, O Lord, for your favor upon us, that you would truly open it to us. Grant us ears to hear and eyes to see. Allow us to be the people who submit to your word who are convicted by it, who are shaped by it, and who obey it. Work it in our hearts this morning and help us, for we ask it in Christ. Amen. There was a study done at the University of Washington by a psychologist and world-renowned expert on marital stability. Didn't know this guy was here at the UW. John Gottman. He tried to figure out why some couples stay together and some don't. Took them a long time. The surprising finding they discovered was that it came down to how they fight. They assumed it was going to be all about active listening, the new theory at the time, and they were shocked to discover that it wasn't. But they were dismayed when they discovered really what it does come down to. Here's what they found, and I quote, the female usually raises a difficult issue, presents an analysis of the problem, and suggests some possible solutions. So far, sounds familiar? (laughs) Males who are able to accept some of these ideas and therefore share, share a sense of power with their partner are far more likely to maintain a successful relationship. In contrast, couples in which males react by stonewalling or even showing contempt are especially likely to break up, end quote. Interesting. They began to realize that active listening, actually, was too high of a communication skill for most people when their emotions got involved. It just didn't happen. You could say, oh, yeah, that active listening, that's where it's at. That's where they thought it was at, but they found out, no, that just goes right out the window. As soon as you get your emotions hurt or wounded, things change. And so instead of this active listening, it was the the main, sorry, the man, not the main, the man restraining his tongue and being willing at some level to accept even It wasn't all of what she said, just parts of what she said. Wow. So men, if you sit on your tongues and you hold back and you accept, look for parts that you can take in, it says that you automatically, in the way that you inter- interact and fight, that you will actually have a good chance of succeeding. So the data says, right? But I think this, what's interesting about this is how much it relates and connects to what the Bible talks about in regard to the tongue. We heard this morning from James chapter 3 about how this unruly member of us can so, this such a small member control all of us and get us into so much trouble. It's, it's, a, it's a problem because we often take offense and then what, as Mike pointed out this morning, it all stems from the heart. We take offense in here, and then it comes out here, right? And then we create problems. 
James 4.11, which we're going to start with this morning, says that we're not to speak against one another. James 5.9 says we're not to grumble against one another. And clearly, this obviously applies to marriage, as they saw here. But you know what? It applies to everything in life, all relationships in life. And this morning, specifically, we're going to look at the ways in which we can speak against one another and destroy the body of Christ, introduce cancer into the body of Christ. This particular member right here can create a lot of damage. We can wreck this community with a really small part of our body. And Scripture isn't quiet about this. Because this morning what I'd like us to look at are the ways in which, not all the ways, but some of the ways in which our tongue causes problems, gets us into trouble, and we hurt one another. To begin with, we're going to look at James chapter 4, verse 11, where it reveals one of the ways that we can introduce a cancer and bring destruction to the body. And what we find here is that we can speak evil of one another. And in a lot of ways, it's pretty easy. James 4, if you look at verse 11, says, Do not speak, this is ESV version, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then he goes on to say, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now that's interesting, isn't it? To speak evil against the law and judges the law. What's he talking about? I think the reason a person who speaks evil against a brother speaks evil against the law is because the very foundation of the law is what? To love your brother. It's to love God and love others. That's the foundation of it all, right? So when we speak in a way that's not loving, but rather evil, we're speaking in a way that's against the law of love. So we're speaking against the law. And then what we're doing, as he says, we're judging the law as being wrong about how to treat our brothers and sisters. We're judging it and saying it's wrong. That we're not to love one another with, in this way. Actually, this is the way we're to do it. By our actions, that's what, we're, that's what we're doing. So that's what he's saying when he says we're against the speaking against the law by doing this. We're actually not, we don't actually declare, I am against the law, but, our, but, but what we're saying and doing, that's what we're saying and doing. The law says to you love your brother, and the way you speak, you're not speaking that way. You're speaking against your brother. But you know, the thing that often gets us with this text is this particular phrase. In the ESV, it's translated, speak evil, to speak evil against your brother. Well, we can easily think he is meaning words that are downright nasty, that are wicked, and therefore, if we, if we think of this in that, that way, we often don't make the application to ourselves. Because, I mean, just outright, you think, of, you think of wicked, you think of nasty slander and malice. You think of calling somebody some really bad word when you think of evil speaking. However, the word translated evil speaking, in the Greek, it actually doesn't, it doesn't necessarily... Um, say evil. And many of the translations don't actually use the word evil. It, they say speak against. Because the evil part actually, what it does is, is help us to know that it's not just speaking um, in a way that's not bad, 
<laughs> or just, it helps us to understand that the way that you're speaking is bad. It's wrong. It's not good. So by saying evil speaking, it's helping us to know that this is wrong kind of speaking. However, I think it takes it too far because it misses, uh, misses the lesser violations that are actually involved in it. We can tend to think of someone speaking evil as being outright slanderous and malicious, as I said, and so often our minds think of that's evil, right? If you think of evil, what do you think of? Do you think of people who just do kind of slight, speak against people in slight ways? Is that what you think? No. When you think of evil, speaking evil of someone, what do you think? You think of somebody speaking in a way that's bad, nasty, wicked, horrible. Siblings might not think it evil to call one another idiot or moron. That's just common fare, isn't it? Hey, the Bible says you're not to speak evil. I didn't speak evil. Moron and idiot aren't evil. You don't think of those as evil. And besides, when I said it, I didn't really mean it. I didn't, like, cuss them out or anything. And even if I did that, I didn't really mean it. And if I don't mean it, it's not really evil. Right? That's the thing. That's, that's how we tend to justify. We tend to hear definitions and say, well, what technically does it mean anyway? And if it means, well, you're saying don't speak evil against one another. When I, when I look at it, when I think about it, when I think about what evil is, and I think about what I did, surely, I mean, these things aren't related. And so we, we figured, that, you know, I agree with the scriptures. I agree that, yeah, we shouldn't speak evil against one another. But in fact, you say you shouldn't speak against one another in ways that are, that, that in any way tear others down. We shouldn't speak against them when they aren't in our presence, like we do often through gossip. Or obviously, the, the one we really understand is if we slander someone, okay, we get that, we understand that. But also, even, with our, even with our, when we're in their presence, you know one of the biggest ways I think we violate this? Is with our humor. Especially if you're kind of witty and you find opportunity to cut to speak against others. The tongue is, is, a, is a deadly weapon. How easy is it for us to get in trouble with our tongues? Have you ever gotten in trouble with your tongues? You know, how many times have you ever gone to bed at night? I'm an idiot. What was I thinking? Why was I saying that? And it, it, we often, especially if you get emotionally involved in something, a lot of times at those moments, you end up saying things that you end up regretting. It's really easy for our tongues to speak against other people. And this is why we have to really, we, we should not give ourselves a lot of room on this, a lot of space on this. We really have to see that this is something that is usually and most often a problem in most people. You know, if you want to know how easy it is to speak this way, if you want to hear a great example, some of you have heard the story, I've actually heard some of you tell the story before, but I think it really serves as a wonderful example of how how this works. But it's, it shows how, if, you, if you're witty and funny, you can use your tongue to really hurt people. You're all familiar with Winston Churchill. Well, he was witty, he was funny, and he had a knack for using his tongue as a weapon. Well, there was a, a woman named Nancy Astor, and she was the first elected woman to Parliament who sat in the House of Commons in England. She was tough, she was witty, and she was not afraid to say it like it was. 
On one particular occasion at a party, her and Churchill found themselves in an elevator uh, together, and she noticed that he had drank too much. And so she said to him, Sir Winston, you are drunk. To which he sharply retorted, My lady, you're ugly. And tomorrow I'll be sober. (laughs) Ouch. See, that's funny, isn't it? But there is a guy who used his tongue, and he used it sharply towards another person to speak against her in a way that, yeah, if you heard, heard that, you probably would have had a hard time resisting the chuckle because it was funny. But the, with his wit and sharp tongue, he hurt, he wounded. And I don't care who you are, she, that would have stung. And that was the intent, to sting. And that's what we're cautioned against, using this thing right here to speak against one another. On another occasion, Churchill and a store found themselves in a verbal spar where Lady Astor said, if I were your wife, I'd put arsenic in your tea. To which Churchill responded, and if I were your husband, I would drink it. (laughs) Now that is funny. That's truly funny. And it might even be what we want to say at times. And witty people, sometimes if you're witty, you think of these things. And if you've not been trained, you don't think to sit on your tongue. You let it out. Well, especially if you've had a couple drinks. Then all of a sudden, this gets a lot looser. That's why the scripture says, do not get drunk on wine, which, which leads to debauchery. Because you start getting loose all over, the the tongue gets loose, the thoughts get loose, the actions get loose, and sometimes way too loose, and then we end up hurting and wounding people. And, you know, we excuse ourselves because why? Here's the number one reason why we excuse ourselves. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean any harm. I was just having fun. It was just in jest, right? Yet, the other person, they still might have a smile on their face, and they've got a dagger in their hearts. That hurt. Have you been hurt by words before? I bet you have. Words words can pierce like the sharpest sword, can't they? They really do sting. But this is what we have to understand. The scriptures say that we are not to speak against one another. And it's not just the evil things. Don't speak in ways that humble, humiliate, bring people down, especially in their presence or not in their presence. And either way, what we should always think to do is, as Ephesians 4 says, think of ways to build them up. That's what we're called to. And this passage of Scripture is intended to be sharp because it's intended to hit us all. And so we all understand, you know what? This tongue of mine gets me in trouble. And we need to learn. If you, if you don't learn, if, you've never got, if your tongue has is, is not got you in trouble, then you don't understand the nature of the tongue. You don't even understand the nature of this verse. You've, I'm sure you've spoken against somebody in some way, either in their presence or not in their presence. And you'll realize how easy it is to do. But moving on, I want to show us another way in which our tongues cause trouble in the body. And that is, we can grumble against one another. So not just speak evil or speak against one another, but we can grumble against one another. James, if you turn over to chapter 5, he says a lot about the tongue in James. 3, 4, and 5, he's got stuff to say about it. In James chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Do not grumble against one another, 
so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There are two components to this that I want us to see that I think require some understanding. The first is what it means to grumble against one another. We need to understand that. What does it really mean? And the second is what it means to be judged by God, like he says. Well, I want to address the second one first. God judging us for us grumbling against one another. This, you know, this can sometimes cause us problems. You ever read in scripture and you hear statements like this and you wonder, what are you getting at, James? What do you mean? God's, he's at the door ready to judge. He's going to judge us if we grumble against one another. That seems interesting. Because if, if God judges us according to our works in any way, we're doomed. That's not very, you're like, wow. If I'm going to be judged and my salvation's based on how my grumbling against someone or not, I'm in trouble. And isn't this why Jesus came to save us? Because we do tend to grumble. We do tend to, to sin against our neighbor. We do tend to sin. So we need a savior from our sin. And now it's saying if, my, if I grumble against my brother, the God will judge me. He's at the door ready to judge. Ooh, what's going on? What does he mean by this? What's he talking about? I think the only way to understand this is to realize that those of us in Christ, get this, we will be judged, but it will not be a matter of salvation. You say, what? What are you talking about? What are you, what are you, what are you getting at? Well, it, this will be a judgment for the giving and taking of, away of rewards for our works. Now, this is what I mean. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, the Apostle Paul says this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, st- uh, hay, straw, each one's work will, be, will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, the day of judgment, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives... He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And there's other passages that speak of this kind of judgment of our works as well. But clearly, God is going to judge our works, believers' works. And the works we do, if they were not righteous, holy, and loving, they will be burned up in judgment. So if you see in the passage, he says God will bring judgment. He is going to bring a judgment upon who? These are the people of, in Christ before God. And you'll notice that last guy, he was left a little naked. There he was standing before God in his judgment. And it says, but he will be saved in the end. But he doesn't look too good. Charred meat, naked. It's kind of, it's kind of the imagery you have there. It's like, Wow. But that's, that's the reality. The people of God in Christ will not be judged whether they're with God and his people in the kingdom of heaven or not. That's the judgment for the world. But within the people of God, we know here clearly our works will be judged. And that's what James is getting at. He says, do not do this, brothers, because don't think for a moment that you can get away with this and that God will not deal with it. If you do not repent of your sins and deal with your sins and you think you can grumble against one another and live like this without any consequence, you're deceived, basically. 
that no, the, the judge of all the earth will, will bring judgment upon it. And don't be surprised if you think you can carry on like this without repenting and turning to the Lord for his cleansing and forgiveness, that you stand before him actually naked. Because sometimes I think we take way too much comfort in the fact that I'm in Christ, now I'm in Christ, it doesn't really matter. Well, no, it does matter. Because there actually still is a judgment, and there still is, there could be, I don't know about you, but I would not want to be exposed for my thoughts and deeds and things that I've done that I've not dealt with, that I just thought I can carry on with them, and, you know, no big deal. These are just small ones. You know, I'm, what's grumbling? What's complaining? Who really cares? What do you need to, why do I need to confess that? Why do I need to deal with that? Everybody grumbles and complains. That's low level. Well, you don't want to be in the day of judgment, be the person who's saved, but a little charred, and stand there naked. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want my thoughts and the intentions of my heart revealed, the stuff that I haven't dealt with. If you've got it there and you just think you can go on carrying on like that and you don't deal with it, do you want it revealed and exposed? No. And this is going to lead to the, the last point I make about the truth. Because... That is going to sting. And yes, it's great. You're in the kingdom. But it's not so great because you had to undergo that particular humiliation. But let's get back to the text, the first part of this. What does it mean? What does it mean to grumble against one another? Well, when it comes to grumbling against one another, we usually think of someone speaking in a negative and grumpy manner underneath their breath. stupid. That, right? That's what I think, at least. That's, when I think of grumbling, that's what grumbling sounds like or looks like. The dictionary defines grumbling this way. To complain or protest about something in a bad-tempered but typically muted way, which is kind of what I was saying. Usually we grumble because someone has done something we don't like. But we don't really know what to do about it. We usually grumble when we feel a sense of obligation to do something that we've been asked to do, but we don't really want to do it. And so we grumble. You know, and whining is usually a close companion to grumbling. Whining and complaining and grumbling. They're all kind of their friends, and they usually manifest themselves together. Because once we grumble against someone, we usually whine about how we're in such a bad place and being mistreated. We whine about our predicament. We think our situation deserves some whining while our actions deserve some grumbling. And by the grumbling and complaining we receive, actually, from by doing that, it feels kind of good. You get a little stress reliever. You know, it's the kind of a way to release this pent-up agitation, and so we grumble and complain. And it's usually the, the result of never being really taught because grumbling and complaining is so natural. It's something we do quite easily. And yet, if we're not taught as little children and given a few spankings for it, we usually can take it on into adulthood and uh, we, we carry it maybe in a little more sophisticated way, but we're still just like little kids. But little kids are great about it because they clearly manifest it. They'll hang their lips down to their knees, they'll hunch their shoulders, and they'll... And, they, and so it's like their heart comes out fully manifestation. You see it, okay, grumbling and complaining. And if a child is not disciplined, if he's not whacked and helped to understand that's not acceptable, that child, that goes all the way up into adulthood, and they kind of change a little bit, but they're <laughs> you can still hear them grumbling and whining about everything they're asked to do that they don't want to do. Because they haven't learned to do the things that they're called to do, and they, haven't, they don't know what it means to be cheerful and thankful. 
And so when it comes to this whole issue of grumbling against one another, we have to understand that whenever we, you know, somebody, this is what happens, somebody does something that we don't like. And so what we usually do is because we don't really know how to deal with or respond to it, but it agitates us, we don't like it, we can grumble and complain against one another. If you grumble and you complain, think about it. You might grumble and complain, people do, about the music in the church. It's not those hymns we used to sing, rah, rah, rah. Well, we can grumble and complain, somebody's obnoxious. That person never shuts up. Or somebody's, you know, we, somebody's kid is bothering us. So it's like, rah, that kid, rah, rah, rah. So what we do is we grumble and complain. Because somebody is doing something we don't like, but we feel powerless and we don't know what to do about it, but we've got to get it off our chest. Right? I was online this week looking for places to tent near Whistler, B.C. We're thinking about doing some camping up there. And this one guy, ironically named Dean, he decided he would grumble against the place in this review that he posted. That's what he said. It's overpriced and not close to Whistler at all. I recommend Nairn Falls. This Trey Park is whack. (laughs) This Trey Park is whack. Way to go, Dean. <laughs> now, obviously, this Dean, this Dean fella has a problem, right? But the owners responded to him. They commented back. And this was their response. Hello, Dean. We pride ourselves on our beautiful view and being more remote than right in the chaos of Whistler Village. We are a 10-minute drive south of Whistler, which allows our guests to enjoy the peace and quiet of our surroundings. It's unfortunate you felt this way. And we we here at the Whistler RV Park and Campground made special arrangements for you to be able to stay with us on a lesser nightly rate. You also seemed very happy with this arrangement and only left due to your trip back north to work. Warm regards, Kyra. Wow. Now, Kyra knows how to deal with a problem. Kyra is a lesson for all of us about dealing with people. That was well done. That was good. That Dean fella was a typical, grumpy, sinful child who's probably never been spanked in his life. He smiles at them, acknowledges them, it seemed favorable to him, gave every indication to them that everything was fine, and then he goes and says, that trade park is whack. They're too far away, and he's just all over them. I'm thinking... Grow up, kid. Clearly this Dean problem, those Dean guys, they always have grumbling problems. This is what it means to grumble, to speak against others in a pouty fashion, all upset about what someone else has done or something been done, and you're in a position that you really, you need to get it off your chest, chest, and you really don't know what to do with that. Or you don't know how to respond to it appropriately. Now, we know the Bible says if someone's caused an offense towards you, if someone's doing something that you, you, know, that you need to deal with, you go to that person and you deal with it. You handle it like Kyra did. Kyra probably didn't have a problem with grumbling and whining because she clearly knows how to go step right into the situation. Let's speak to the situation and address it. Now, I'm sure she went to her husband and said, that Dean guy's an idiot. I don't know. I don't know. But... 
but she probably doesn't have to grumble and complain about it because she's dealing with it properly. And that is a very biblical way to deal with it. So the thing is, we have to understand, if we don't want to destroy the body, bring a cancer into the body, we have really got to understand that grumbling and complaining does that, and we need to deal with things appropriately and properly. Stop grumbling, stop whining, grow up, and speak to people face-to-face, deal with problems, or if, you can't, if, you, if you're not up to that, then you've got to zip your lips. Those are your options. Zip it, or go to them and deal with it. But don't go around grumbling and complaining to other people. Those aren't, that isn't an option. And if you do that, repent. Confess to other people what you've done, and that'll start to fix things. Start repenting to people and confessing your sin, and that's not too fun. And that'll have a way of addressing your problem. The last thing I want us to deal with or look at, one of the ways that we also can cause a problem in the body, bring a cancer and bring destruction, is that we can lie to one another. And this, is, this, this particular aspect comes from Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, where it says explicitly, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its practices. You have been basically raised in Christ to newness of life. You were a new person. Walk according to the new person. That's, that lying to one another is with the old person. That's what you used to do. Now, this one's kind of interesting, I think, because we probably think of ourselves as pretty honest people. Most people do. Yet, according to researcher Pamela Meyer, author of Lie Spotting, there's a cool name, Lie Spotting, Proven Techniques to Detect Deception. <laughs> In there, she said that we are lied to from 10 to 200 times per day. Just, this is the world we live in. And this is because, obviously, we live in a world where there's lies and deception are just kind of par for the course. And there's a good reason for this. is because we're afraid of what the truth might cost us. This is what produces lying. It's protection of self, love of self. We we fear what others might think of ourselves, of us. We fear what might happen to ourselves. We fear what might happen to the relationship. So out of fear, we're controlled by fear of what might happen if we actually said the truth. We, we think of other ways to skirt around the issue. Now, in that 10 to 200 times, obviously there's little, what they call little white lies when your wife says to you, uh, hey, honey, how do I look in this dress? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> But there's also much... That, that's a, see, what that does, though, is that illustrates perfectly why we lie. In that situation, we do not want to say that that looks horrible on you because we, we know the consequences of such statement. That is going to cause a world of hurt that we just do not want to deal with, and we're going to have drama for two hours. We won't even make it to church because it'll just be you know, two hours of trying to recover all this stuff, so it's not worth it. And so because of costs... Truth, the tr- declaring the truth to one another sometimes has a cost. We avoid it. You can tell, you can see why it's so tempting to want to not necessarily speak the truth. We come and figure out ways to, to fudge. And, uh, you know, here's the other side of it. And this might seem a little strange. We don't really like the truth. You say, I love the truth. Uh, didn't Jesus say, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free? 
I want freedom. I want truth. I love truth. Truth is great. But what truth does, truth bruises our egos. Truth is painful. Truth actually hurts self-love. It really does. Just think about the last time you felt when somebody mentioned something about your weight, your looks, your clothes, your attitude, or your accomplishments, your performance, or your whatever. And often there's some truth in there, but boy, we don't like it. We probably didn't listen for like 10 seconds before we, we shot back like Churchill. Yeah, and you're ugly too. You know, we, that's what we do. We defend. The things that we love the most, we're most passionate about defending. And if you will notice, you're most passionate about defending yourself, your ego. You love yourself, and you love yourself passionately. Someone wounds or hurts self, and it's like, woo. That's why, what do we call them? Like husbands and wives, they have buttons, right? And those buttons, we know that they, we know we push them in. Woo, we got a hot one. And if you're angry, that's how you, you, that's how you get somebody back. If I know your buttons and you push mine and you made me angry, well, yeah. Oh, yeah, you think that's good, huh? I, I got, well, how about this one? You're ugly, too. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you, know, you know, another one's coming. And then you got to react and give it back. And this is what happens. This is why we, in reality, and there's usually, there's enough truth in there that it bites, it stings, it hurts. And we do not like that. Because often, have you ever gotten stung? And you, th- you can't stop thinking about it. You're thinking it over and over and over again. By day two, you're like, you know what? They're right. That is true. You ever have that happen? Yeah, a little, some time later, you had enough time to cool down and really think about it, and there was truth in it. You're like, yeah, they're right. And I'm just so, I'm so in love with myself, I just can't stand it if someone goes after me. You know, the truth can be painful, and we talk a big game. We talk such a big game. Yeah, I love the truth, and it's not, you know, just give me the truth. Just be straight up with me. And, you know, have you ever had one of those 360-degree reviews? They're the things, they often do them in the, in the corporate world. And it's like all of your life they end up reviewing. And when you about open that thing up, you get into a cold sweat because you're just terrified about what you're going to find out. And you start reading it. And you're finding out things about yourself, and you know they're true, but at the, you're denying them usually. And you're hearing some things you don't want to hear. How was that? Was that just fun and delicious? Did you like the truth? Was it great to hear the truth about, you know, your weaknesses? Was it great to hear, you know, the truth about where you're really at? No, it wasn't. It stunk. You didn't like that. That's never fun. It's never delightful. You know, but the thing is with truth, truth is so good for you. It's what makes you change. But truth is like having a root canal. You know, man, I'm so glad I had it. It wasn't fun. It wasn't great getting injected with a pound of, uh, you know, freezing and, and the smoke and the grinding and the smell of all that. That was awful. But at the end, it was all said and done. It feels so much better, doesn't it? Now that it's all fixed up and you feel kind of good, that's kind of like what it's like hearing the truth. And if you ever doubt that or wonder about that, just go read the Gospels. There's no one who could tell it straight like Jesus. 
I've had times I'm reading about some of the things he said to the Pharisees at a dinner party, and I'm looking for somewhere to hide. I'm like, holy cow, could you imagine being at that dinner party where he said that? Where he talked to them that way, and he was just straight down the middle. And you, and you imagine being the person hearing that and around these people, and he's giving it to you that straight. Woe to you, he's telling everybody. Woe to you, you scribes and you Pharisees. You who, you know, you, you tie the mint and the cumin and, the, and, and you parse everything out, but yet you, you neglect the greater parts of the lie. I mean, the law, <laughs> the lie, the law, the love, mercy, the truth. You, you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. That's the thing, you hypocrites. You wash the outside, but the inside, you're all dirty. <laughs> you're, you know what? You, you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like venomous snakes in your hearts. Woo! That would not be fun. You know, have you ever read the Word of God and been reading... It's like, I think I've got to put that down right now. I'm going to skip that book because that was too much. Whew. That is such a good thing. But we hate it, don't we? We need, desperately need the truth. And we're not to be lying to one another and, and smiling and faking to one another. But you know what? The flip side of this, we think, oh, that means that we go around telling the truth. And we know the truth is sharp. The truth cuts. The truth is like, it, it pulls no punches. So we're to speak the truth to one another. Yes, we are. But because it's so sharp and deadly, this is why you need to do it with great care, gentleness, kindness, and love. We talked about admonition and what that means. About being very, a very careful, gentle, light kind of warning or rebuke in that sense. We looked at Ephesians 4 where it says, speak the truth to one another. How? In love. This is very important. Because we can't just hear, do not lie to one another. And think, Okay, we're just going to tell it straight up. We're going to go in there as truth tellers. And if you've ever met those kind of people, they're as bad on the church as anybody else. They're, they're worse than somebody who's just holding everything back. Because it creates all kinds of wounds. Because if you're going to manage and handle the truth, it's like managing and handle a scalpel. We have one surgeon in our presence, right? You better be careful. That is sharp. When you, do that, when you touch that to the skin, you better know exactly where you're going to touch it and be very careful because it cuts. Cuts quickly. And I think that's the thing with truth. We have to understand that the flip side of this, you should not lie to one another. Clearly, we don't want to go around fabricating that Facebook life that everything's just great. Right? Well, meanwhile, our lives are a mess. That's a fabricated lie. You're deceiving everybody around you. Speak the truth to one another. However, in speaking the truth, we need to be gentle, kind, and gracious. This is a very difficult thing to do. And it's something we have to grow up in and mature in. Otherwise, we find that this, you can have a superficial fake congregation that everyone's faking their happiness and their smiles. It's just a joke. Or you could have this congregation over here. Everybody's truth-telling, and there's two of you left. Because these people like, we tell it like it is. You would come in here, we're going to get you. You know, there's that person who almost loves that. I've ran into him a few times. And what we're called to is speak the truth to one another in love. And that takes care and gentleness and kindness. 
And as you'll notice in a marriage, if you're going to be truthful to one another, I tell you what, you better learn the art of being gentle and kind. Because if you've got something to, if you've got to sit down and talk, honey, can we talk? Oh, great. You know there's probably some truth coming down. But if you don't deliver that in, in the right way, you're going to create all kinds of problems. And so that's what, the body is no different. How we interact with one another, how we deal with one another, we need to be incredibly patient, kind, and gentle. But we have to speak the truth. We can't be lying to one another. It'll destroy the body. Not only that, we can't be grumbling against one another because when we do, that really causes a problem. And we certainly shouldn't be speaking against one another in private or in public or in any way that wounds and hurts. We, our goal needs to be to build up one another. That's what we need to be about. We need to be, a, we need to be a people who pursue this. But you know what? This will never happen unless you know what it takes to work on your own heart. Your heart, from the abundance of the heart, as Mike shared with us this morning, guess what? The mouth speaks. Your mouth gives you away. And so the thing is, if you've got a mouth problem, you've got a heart problem. If you've got a heart problem, do you know what you need to do? You need to do the things that are not comfortable. You need to do the things that are really going to work on your heart. But you know what? Hey, guys, do you like being uncomfortable? No, I don't like being uncomfortable either. But I'll tell you what, you've got to desire to be, live there, otherwise you avoid it. You know, lots of people, why do they avoid reading the scriptures? They don't like getting into this because it gets into them. And it messes with them. And it says things you don't like. It's like, ooh, that's not comfortable, is it? I want to be comfortable. I don't like being messed with. Get into your word, dive into it, and read it, and I'm sure God will mess with you. He starts working on your heart, and you need that. You need really good Christian fellowship and camaraderie. You need them in your lives because their lives, especially if people are by their lives alone, are calling you up. That's uncomfortable, but it's what you need. You need to be faithfully attending worship because hopefully you come here and God at times makes you uncomfortable. I hope during the sermon you are often made uncomfortable. That's what growth is all about. You seeing yourself, who you really are, being made uncomfortable, being willing to go through the process and being led to repentance. I hope we understand that if we do not seek the Lord, if we do not seek his word, seek him through prayer, seek him through the fellowship of his people, seek him in worship, if we're not pursuing him, we're not going to be growing, our heart's not going to be changing, and our mouth is going to betray us. The only way to get to our hearts is to go before the Lord and say, oh, Lord, have your way with me. Get into his word. But I'll guarantee you, I'm not saying this because that's just a fun journey. I'm saying this because that's what you need, and it's uncomfortable. But uncomfortable is awesome if you love to grow. Uncomfortable is awful if you love comfortable. So may we love the uncomfortable and be willing to grow and our hearts be changed before the Lord and we start to see the fruit come out of our mouths and we really start to bless one another. Amen. Father, we praise you that you treat us as children and you are such an awesome good father that you discipline, you spank and bring us to conviction. We praise you for this. Oh Lord, I ask that you would expose our own tongues, that we would see the folly and the foolishness of our own mouths and how we so often sin against one another. We sin against you. 
by the things that we say, especially in private. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Work in our hearts and cleanse us that we would desire nothing more than to bless one another, speak the truth to one another, encourage one another, build up one another, and praise your holy name. Amen.